Hey, it's Steph Dixon, and welcome to the Live Wide Awake podcast. Thanks for being one of our listeners in 88 countries around the world. Today, we're speaking with author, activist, and change maker Osprey Oriel Lake. She's the founder of Women's Earth and Climate Action Network Weekend, sits on the executive committee for the Global Alliance for the Rights of Nature, and on the steering committee for the Fossil Fuels Non Proliferation Treaty. She works internationally with grassroots, BIPOC, and Indigenous leaders, policymakers, and diverse coalitions to build climate justice, resilient communities, and a just transition to decentralized, democratized, clean energy future. In this episode, we talk about the legal system that we need to protect nature, why Indigenous people are scientists, how we can heal our separation from nature, and so much more. Okay, it's time to live wide awake. Well, Osprey, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited about diving into this conversation with you. And I'd love to start at the beginning. So how did you first actually get into the climate space? Was this something that was activated in you when you were young or was it something more that happened when you were an adult? First of all, thank you for having me on your show. It's really great to be here with you. Well, for me, it goes back to my youth. I don't think it was called the climate crisis or climate change or the climate space at that time. But I've always been very dedicated to caring about nature and the earth. And where I grew up, which is on the Mendocino Coast in California, one of the big issues that was very important when I was living there was around the protection of the redwood forests, which are some of the tallest trees in the world, if not the tallest trees in the world, and just magnificent forests there that were being threatened through logging. And so a lot of the places that I love dearly were getting logged. And it really struck me in my youth to see these beautiful places being destroyed. And it brought forward that question, began really my interest in how do we care for the land? How do we care for the earth? And that began my journey. And then there's a lot of arc, obviously, between my youth to having started working on climate issues. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so was Women's Earth and the Climate Action Network the first thing that you sort of founded in this space as that adult? Or was there sort of a little bit of a journey in between that got you there? A lot of journey in between. But just to to mention the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network, or WeCan, I began that work in different iterations, but really formalizing it through a big conference that we held in New York with women from all over the world. But it started in 2009 when the Obama administration came in and there was a big climate conference that happens every year through the United Nations. It was taking place in Copenhagen that year. And a lot of us thought that there would be like some really big breakthroughs with the government around the climate crisis and the need to address the level of the crisis did not happen at that climate talk. And so I really stopped everything I was doing and said, what can I do to do something about this unfolding crisis that is impacting the whole world? And it's at that time that I started doing research and found that there's this incredible role that women's leadership plays in resolving the climate crisis, or at least stopping the worst impacts. And so I founded WeCan because I was very intrigued and excited that women were really in a crucial position to make significant change and yet their voices weren't being heard. And so that's really how I founded WeCAD to really give voice and agency and projects and advocacy to the incredible work that women are doing in the climate space. Mm, And so how has that sort of, I guess, come to fruition and and what is the kind of work that you're doing for that and, and to be able to put women's voices front and forward? 
So we do a lot of work. It's quite wide ranging, everything from protecting forests in the Amazon and the DR Congo, which are key to mitigating the climate crisis, uh, to reforestation projects, which is really exciting, reforesting different lands and regenerating lands that have been damaged. We do advocacy work at the UN Climate Talks, as I was mentioning, we're, we're really engaged in that process to ensure that there is gender equity and ensuring that we have women's voices and that frontline women, black, brown, and indigenous women's voices are heard in these spaces because they're, they're often and most frequently the ones who have their communities impacted first and worst by uh, environmental degradation and climate crises. And yet they're also key to solutions. So we want to make sure they're in these spaces to share their knowledge and what they're doing on these issues. We do a lot of work on stopping fossil fuel projects because coal, oil, and gas are the source of the climate crisis and getting carbon emissions out of the atmosphere. We need to really stop fossil fuel expansion and extraction. And we do a whole host of work around rights of nature and around, you know, what are the solutions we're looking at and how can we build food sovereignty and food security systems? What can we do to regenerate the land? How can we connect better with nature? So there's a whole host of work that's everything from projects to advocacy to being in these bigger international forums to advocate for climate justice. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I would love to understand a little bit more about, you know, you said the Global Alliance for the Rights of Nature, that you're on the executive committee there, and also the steering committee for the Fossil Fuels Non-Proliferation Treaty. So what role are these organizations sort of playing and how do we fight for the rights of nature? I mean, this seems something that's so critical and yet seems so big in a sense, you know, like what can actually be done on the ground for that? Yeah, it's a great question. So while we're we're really challenging systems that have to change and challenging governments and financial institutions to to move away from extractive economies and harmful practices, what is the world we're trying to build? And I really get into this a lot in my book, as well as a lot in the work we do at Weekend. So two things I'm really excited about, along with you know lifting up women's leadership, which is so essential, is something called Rights of Nature. And we've been on the executive committee of the Global Alliance for Rights of Nature that you mentioned for, for quite some time, I think close to a decade now. And this is not just an idea, but actually being implemented now. And it's this idea that if we have like the... Uh, Universal Declaration on the Rights of Humans, we should also have the Universal Declaration on the Rights of Mother Earth or the Rights of Nature. And so it's a movement that's been building for quite some time to really say that nature needs to be a rights-bearing entity. Because right now, when you go to a court of law, pretty much anywhere in the world, there's no voice for the forest or the rivers or the mountains because nature is viewed as property. So it's really the property owner who gets to speak about the forest or the river or the mountain or the ocean. And we're saying, no, we need a whole different form of earth jurisprudence or a philosophy of law that puts Mother Earth right in the center of the conversation. Because right now, nature and forests and rivers and water are all being discussed in terms of the marketplace. And what is it that we can extract and sell and how our forests and the minerals under the earth are all part of this extractive economy, which is driving the climate crisis, environmental degradation and so much harm to frontline communities. And so this idea about rights of nature is to say, no, we want to protect nature and nature has the right to thrive and grow and flourish and be healthy. And how do we create current laws 
that really say we need to, as humans, live within the natural laws of nature, within the natural laws of Mother Earth. And what's very exciting is it's one of the fastest growing movements in the world. The UN Secretary General at the end of last year said that Earth jurisprudence, which right to nature is a part of, is one of the fastest growing movements in the environmental sector. And I think people are realizing we can't continue with the way environmental laws and environmental regulatory programs are working right now, because if they were working, we wouldn't be in these crises. And so we need a very different system of law. And um, in 2008, Ecuador became the first country in the world to put rights of nature into their constitution. And so uh, there's been cases now uh, protecting rivers in Ecuador based on rights of nature in the constitution. Here in the United States, there's been like three dozen cases of local ordinances where local communities put rights of nature into their local ordinance systems and were able to stop fracking in their communities. One case that I really love is in New Zealand, where it's a form of rights of nature where the Maori people were able to pass a settlement on the Wanganui River. And the Wanganui River people and the Wanganui tribe now hold a relationship with the New Zealand government, where one person from the government and one person from the Wanganui tribe are the custodians of the Wanganui River. And recognizing the Wanganui River has personhood and has rights just as a person does and cannot be harmed in the way a person cannot be harmed. And I think this is so beautiful because it really feeds into a lot of indigenous knowledge systems, which we all have so much to learn from and sit at the feet of indigenous people to learn about their relationship with nature, which they have maintained for a millennium and living in right relationship with the land. And it really enforces this idea that we are all relatives, that the, the earth is alive, the earth is animate, that the stones, that the rivers, that the oceans are alive. And how do we create a legal system that recognizes nature as a relative? And so the Wanganui River is now recognized as a living ancestor, which is how, um, as it was explained to me um, by Maori people when I visited there, they view their river. And I was really honored to go there on a fact-finding mission um, and was um, invited to go visit the river with some Maori elders. And we went to this really beautiful place along the river. And um, the, the Maori elder we were with, she sang this beautiful song, ancient song that connects you to the, to, to the river. And when she was done, she took my hand and she said, we have a saying here, I am the river and the river is me. I am the river and the river is me. And in that moment, I could just really feel so deeply um, their traditional knowledge and that sense of, you know, that most, you know, as a human being, our bodies are mostly water and we're connected to the rivers. We're connected to the waters of the world. We are water. Water is life. And I just loved when she shared that with me and really feeling that sense of the Wanganui River as relative, as our ancestor um, not metaphorically, but in my body and, and understanding how we need to have our legal systems, our economic systems, really realign ourselves with the natural laws of the earth. That's so beautiful. I had goosebumps when you were sharing that story. Thank you for, for sharing that with us. There's so many directions I can go in from everything you just said, but I think I'll start with just continuing on the indigenous knowledge piece first. So 
it's such a critical part of the conversation and what we need moving forward. And yet we also need to still, you know, involve modern science and society and these types of things. So like when it comes to this climate conversation and forwarding the rights of nature, how how do you see that sort of intersection and how can we continue to push this narrative forward? One of the things that really interests me and I think is really important to a lot of our our global movements for protecting the earth and social justice and human rights and indigenous rights, first is to understand that 80% of all the biodiversity left on earth, 80% is in the hands and lands of indigenous peoples. And so it only behooves us to learn from indigenous people, respect their rights and sovereignty, listen to their instructions, because this is where the last clean water is, the last of the forests. We need to really understand the role of indigenous peoples at this point and those relationships they've maintained with their lands and their traditional ecological knowledge and see indigenous people as scientists. Often I think there's this Uh, um, barrier of not seeing Indigenous knowledge, traditional ecological knowledge or Indigenous peoples as scientists in the way that we uphold Western scientists and all their expertise. So I think one of the beginning points is to understand that Western science is obviously incredibly valuable and the research that we learn from scientists and their role in helping us to understand the environmental crises we face, what's going on with the climate crisis and all the statistics and analyses that are being offered. But, you know, more and more Western scientists are realizing how important it is to connect with indigenous people and their longstanding knowledge of how to live in relationship to the lands where we all live and the historical knowledge that indigenous people are carrying about their regions. So I've seen a lot of collaborations between you know, Western science and indigenous scientists or traditional knowledge keepers from indigenous peoples around all the records they've kept about what is happening, you know, in the Arctic, as an example, and their knowledge of the snow and the snow melt and what's going on with the climate change that's going on. And so I think as we move forward, what's really critical is to uplift indigenous knowledge to, you know, really view it and understand it and acknowledge it as significant, if not more significant than Western science and really give indigenous people voice and also a seat at the highest levels of decision-making. We need to make sure they're part of decision-making processes and really stand with indigenous peoples as they fight for their rights and sovereignty because it's most important for them. We should just be doing it because it's the ethical and right thing to do, but it is also important for all of our survival. No, absolutely. And so how can we support or what needs to happen? Is it a societal shift? Is it like a leadership shift, like so that we can actually make sure they're getting that decision-making power and have a seat at these tables? Are you seeing that that's happening more and more, or is it still a very big battle? Both. I am seeing improvement. I definitely, you know, over the last decade have seen there being a lot more respect and knowledge for Indigenous people's leadership and knowledge and funding to their organizations and invitations for them to be situated properly in places of decision making. However, it is far, far, far from where we really need to be with Indigenous people's leadership and centering their knowledge and voices. So there has been improvement, but there needs to be 
a lot more effort to ensure that Indigenous organizations are funded, that Indigenous peoples are brought into the highest level of decision-making, whether it's at UN conferences or in international negotiations of any kind or decision-making country by country in the government. And to see as an example that Indigenous peoples are nations, they're independent nations, and to really lift them up not as stakeholders, which they're often referred to, but as leaders of nations and leaders of knowledge systems that are vital to everyone. So we have a long ways to go. No, absolutely. And I wanted to talk a little bit about worldviews because this is something that you address in your work and in your writing as well. And so why is it important to that we actually look at these and as we're you know facing mounting social and ecological crises? So in my book, I wanted to go upstream and really look at worldviews because as someone who's been involved in activism for a long time on social and ecological issues, what I see is that in addition to the daily work that we do as an example at Weekend and many people over the world, I mean, we're fighting this pipeline from going through or this extractive project or protecting a forest or busy, you know, in one of our projects, reforesting or starting a food sovereignty program. And all of these things are very immediate and hands-on. And we need to put all our energy into this collectively, whichever way that we can, because it's like an ecosystem of things happening all at the same time that need to go on and all the advocacy works we do and reports that we put out. At the same time, I'm aware that if we don't look at how did we get into this which some scholars are calling a polycrisis, whether it's social, economic, you know, racial, colonized crises, we have to be able to understand where they're coming from and what are the root causes. And so when I look at worldview and explore worldview, I'm looking at what is the thinking and assumptions and belief systems that got us into these crises? Because if we can go to the root causes and begin to dismantle those root causes and understand them and transform them, we have a much better opportunity to build the world we want. It's really hard to build the world you want and to fight systems of oppression if you don't know what they are and where they came from. Just like if you go to the doctor, you wanna be diagnosed with what you're ill with so that you can be properly treated. You can't just start treating somebody without knowing where is this coming from? What is the origin of the illness? And so my approach in my book is very much, how do we look at root causes? How do we look at our worldviews? And to name a few, so as an example, I'm looking at the root causes of colonization, of racism, of patriarchy, and capitalism. These are the systems of oppression that we are facing. And so when we look at this, we can go upstream and realize, oh, okay, so how did we evolve at to this point historically where most people, unless you know you are land connected to the land very deeply, a local community or an indigenous people, you know, for most people in the dominant culture, there is a sense of separation from nature. Where did this separation from nature narrative come from? And you know, how do you care for the land if you have no connection to the land? So how do we start understanding where this false narrative of separation and orphanage from the land come from so that we can begin to heal that narrative and heal that sense within ourselves. And I say sense because it's not real. Of course, we're connected to the web of life. We're part of nature. But many of us feel on a daily basis that we're not connected to the land. And how is that impacting us? How is that affecting our politics? How is that affecting our social and ecological relationships with the land and each other? 
And so worldview comes into play here because where did these worldviews come from and how do we transform them so that we really become a life enhancing species and one that is living in harmony with each other, not warring on each other. Why are we having this sense of us and them belonging and othering? And how do we really get to a different dialogue, which is critical at this time, you know, between all of the horrors that we're seeing in the world right now, from wars to environmental degradation, we need a different way of viewing who we are as human beings and how we relate to each other and the earth. And so this is why I'm looking at worldviews. No, absolutely. And so what are those? Well, first, I'm kind of interested to just continue on this particular trajectory to understand what is it that happened that led to us to feel, or at least in modern society, to feel that separation from nature? And what are the steps that we need to start doing to heal that so that we do remove exactly what you just said, the them and otherness and and all that? How do we then get back to that state of connection and deep, yeah, deep integration with nature and each other? So that's why I wrote a book. It's a big topic. Yeah, I so, know. <laughs> So I'm just going to hit on a few points because you know, it's interesting. It's it's such not a a soundbite sort of analysis or response because the separation from nature narrative goes back in history to um, many different factors, and I'll just mention a few things here. But you know, it's certainly not a complete response to your really good question. But some of it has to do with, you know, how humans evolved and began to build civilization. And some of it also has to do with religious beliefs that then created a system of going from seeing the world as animate, that, you know, the rocks are alive, all the animals are our relatives, the river is alive, as we've been talking about, that the mountain is alive, that the clouds are alive, that we're part of this animate cosmology, a living earth. And that everything is sacred and holy and is part of this beautiful, holy, living earth that we're part of as well. And through a whole series of things, which I won't go into, because again, each thing is, is, is really a lot to tease out in, in a short statement. But we moved from this understanding to monotheistic religions and this idea of one male God who is no longer part of the ecosystem we're part of, but in the sky somewhere, perhaps, and not necessarily in the river or in the tree or in the landscape anymore, but somehow above and disconnected from nature. And not only did we lose that balance of the goddesses and gods together, in plural, but we have this one male dominant God who's separate and no longer part of this everyday reality and how that began to create systems of thinking of this orphanage from the land. So part of the healing process, again, I'm shorthanding many things, is about, you know, the everyday experience of like really understanding we are part and particle of nature and the landscape around us. So some of the remedying of this is how do we change our narrative and our belief systems 
and that is the worldview component. But there's also the very direct experience without getting all intellectual about having gardens in our backyard, going for walks in nature, these things that we can immediately do to reconnect ourselves with the land, meditating out on the land, spending time with your local river and understanding where does my water come from? Most often we just turn on our faucets in our homes and never even think, actually, where's my source of water coming from? And there was a whole time, I haven't been doing this lately, but where I live in California, where I did these workshops where we would hike up into the mountains with groups of people up into the watershed so people could see this is the mountain that where the rain and snow falls and this is where your water's coming from. And then we would follow, it's like a, it was like a three or four hour hike. You could follow the watershed down to the reservoir where the water's collected. And then it goes into the pipes into the city where, you know, it comes up in your homes. But I just got letters for many years later about people, just the deep experience of this is where my water comes from. So when I turn the faucet, there's a whole different relationship because now we know where our water comes from. So there's so many ways. It's just like one example of how can we now take more time to reconnect with the natural world around us, but also understand these narratives are very deep in our modern dominant culture and they need to be restructured and transformed because if you don't feel connected to the land, it's a lot easier to extract and destroy the earth because you're not connecting with the fact that you're destroying the web of life or your living relative and the animate earth. So it has deep consequences and how we developed capitalism, how we developed colonization is a lot of these separation narrative themes and also the dominion over others and dominion over nature. And where did these narratives come from? That these people are more important than those people and we're more important than the forest. And on and on it goes with these hierarchies that are incredibly destructive. And so we're dealing also with unpacking white supremacy, unpacking supremacy over nature, and really getting humble again about where are we in the web of life and with one another so that we can live in harmony with the land and each other again. And I'm not trying to point to some kind of fake utopia. These are extremely difficult, challenging, violent expressions that humans are engaged in right now. And it will be very difficult to do, but we need to begin on this enterprise and get to a lot better place than we are now. And so I'm curious, like, let's look at the next like 10, 20 years ahead. Is it going to get worse before it gets better in your view? You know, as you just said, these are massive webs that society has built basically. And we have to now, you know, detangle ourselves from something that is just so prominent around the world. So yeah, like, do you think it's going to get worse before things get better? And, and in 10, 20 years, like, what are we going to be looking at in society? Like, where are we going to be at? Do you think? I don't have a crystal ball. So I'll just give some, some ideas. You had mentioned earlier, and I meant to track back to it about the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty. And I'm really honored to be on the steering committee of the treaty. And I mention it because I think it's something really hopeful and part of changing the trajectory over the next 10 years, along with rights of nature, along with women's leadership, along with indigenous rights, is the Fossil Fuel Proliferation Treaty, which is very exciting in that it is a parallel mechanism to the Paris Climate Agreement. And listeners may know that um, in 2015, Countries of the world agree to the Paris Climate Agreement, which is basically, you know, a legally binding document that countries agreed to, which has the 1.5 degree guardrail on it, that we won't pass that in terms of 
global temperature rise. And it, it's a really important document. And every year, countries get together and continue the negotiations around implementing the Paris Climate Agreement. So it's very important that countries agree to that. And at WECAN, we utilize that 1.5 degree guardrail that is within the Paris Agreement all the time in our advocacy work with financial institutions to get them to change their money from fossil fuel extraction to renewable energy or in advocating with governments. So I really want to honor the Paris Agreement, but at the same time, it mostly deals with carbon emission reductions and not necessarily the supply end. It was just in Dubai in December at the climate talks and finally fossil fuels were drug center stage by civil society and by climate vulnerable countries to the climate talks to finally get in the formal documents a commitment from governments that they would transition off of fossil fuels. But it's very slow process and much more is needed. So the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty is this really brilliant mechanism that was initiated and chaired now by Zipporah Perman, a really powerful activist from Canada, which is a mechanism for countries to get together and specifically and explicitly deal with ending fossil fuels, because we can't stop the climate crisis without ending fossil fuels. It's just a scientific fact. And so I'm excited about that. Just to give one quick update on that, when we were at the climate talks in Dubai in December, there were more countries that endorsed it. I think there's like 12 or more countries that now have endorsed the fossil fuel treaty. And particularly, it was interesting that Colombia, which is a fossil fuel producing country, signed on to endorse the treaty. So that's a really big breakthrough. So I'm very hopeful about how do we get off of fossil fuels? It's urgent that we do so. I'm excited about a lot of reforestation projects at WECAN. One of the projects that we're doing right now is in the Democratic Republic of Congo. We've been working there for nine years with our WECAN coordinator, Nima Namamandu, who is an amazing leader in, in, in the Congo. And at this point, we have planted you know, hundreds of thousands of trees in an area that was like totally destroyed and completely deforested. In the process, two things are happening. We've planted so many trees that 1.6 million acres of old growth forests are being protected because 25% of the trees that we're growing are for human use. So they're not using the old growth anymore, which is critical to climate mitigation. And 75% of the trees is to reforest the land and heal this land. And because of all the trees we've planted, something happened last year, which we were totally not expecting. I, I didn't know this would happen, which is that you know, we're changing the entire ecology and biome of the area and the rains are coming back because of all of the trees that we planted. And as a result, nature is now our best partner because through the rains coming back, nature is now reforesting ourselves in addition to the trees we're planting. So these kind of things really make me hopeful that even though there's so much destruction, if we support nature, nature will also regenerate herself in ways that are really unexpected. And so I think this is where we need to put our time and energies, you know, fighting all the bad stuff so it doesn't get worse, but also realizing that there's a lot of these amazing programs and projects going on that can really bring healing to the earth rapidly, much more rapidly than I had anticipated. But to not avoid one of the questions you asked is, are things going to get worse before they get better? I believe they will get worse before they get better. Yes. And I'm really sorry to report that, but I do think that the climate crisis is at a critical tipping point and we will see more droughts and floods. And, you know, I'm in California. We just had this huge, almost at the tornado level windstorms here. 
And, you know, anywhere in the world you go, people are going to report more extreme weather events. So yes, that is happening. We need to, to really care for frontline communities, particularly who are hit first and worst by these crises and understand there's going to be a lot of work needed around just dealing with climate disasters and how we're going to care for people as climate disasters increase, which is why we're also doing these food sovereignty and food security programs so people can have food locally, local medicines. People are going to need places that they can go for safe harbor. And we need to be thinking about this while at the same time we stop the worst harms and turn the corner. But this is all got to happen at the same time. And, you know, that's how we're trying to work in a lot of different arenas to be like an ecosystem of solutions. Because, um, yeah, I think I think we're in for a hard ride, but we also can do a lot if we move quickly now and end the era of fossil fuels and stopped extracting and really stop consuming, power down, live more simply, all these things that we know we need to do, we have to do them. Thank you for sharing. I know that was a difficult question. So I really deeply appreciate your answer. And so for all the beautiful humans that are listening right now, what are some tangible things that we can all do to be part of creating those solutions and amplifying what needs to be amplified? Aside from obviously reading your book and being in nature and in their own gardens and connecting that side of things, like what else can people do? Just a couple of things you think? I think the first thing is to really understand It's a time, some of your listeners may be very engaged already, which is fantastic. So keep going, everybody. And I really appreciate everybody's work because it's a collective effort. We're all doing different things and it all adds up to a solution. And to know that this is a time to not be on the sidelines and think, oh my gosh, it's just so overwhelming. How can my little activity do anything? Well, my experience is that those little activities add up to the results we want. So whatever you're doing, remember, it's part of a whole collective of activities that together can help push us through this small keyhole of time that we have to respond to these growing crises. And for me, it's about finding your passion. I know people say that, but it really does make a difference. Find out what part you're passionate about, what is really interesting for you. That's where to jump in because we have the energy for the things we're interested in and find out whether it's, you know, stopping plastics in your community or protecting your local watershed or, you know, helping with disaster relief, whatever it is that makes you excited. That's the best entry point. And then finding out other people who are doing that work in your local community and really committing to that as a way of life instead of sort of like, something you may dip in and out of. We all need to realize this is a time for us all to have us be a part of our lifestyle, being volunteering or being involved in organizations or whatever it is that excites you. We need everyone right now on an ongoing basis. So that's one thing. And then the other is, you know, we were talking a lot about indigenous peoples. It's also really important to know if you're not in your homelands, you know, what indigenous people are, what territories you're on, whose lands are you on? And how can you learn about Indigenous peoples where you live and uplift their calls to action, uplift the work that they're doing and be engaged in in participating in the solutions that they're offering? This is something I think is really important as well. The thing is, we are going to generate hope and a promise for the future with engagement. That's the answer, rolling up our sleeves and everyone getting engaged. I think we all want a better place for our children and future generations. And so that we're going to create the future is by being here in the present and doing everything that we can. Yeah, absolutely. And how do you think that we can live wide awake? We can live wide awake by being present. And sometimes 
that means being uncomfortable. If wide awake means only being, you know, happy and fulfilled every minute, then I don't think we're really wide awake. So I think wide awake is accepting all of our reality, the joy, the grief, the love, the loss, the excitement, the parts that are challenging. Um, I always tease my team, you know, because I'll go, we'll go do some big action and we're involved in these international conferences and speaking on stages and talking to all these important people. And the next day, nope, it's time to do the dishes. I like that saying, you know, before enlightenment, do dishes. After enlightenment, do dishes. And so (laughs) I really like to think if we're going to be wide awake, you know, we've got to accept all of it and be present for all of it and make sure that we are in community because we can't hold this grief or this joy alone. So being community also helps us be wide awake. Absolutely. Such a beautiful answer. And I think it's so true. You know, we just that having that deep acceptance for all of it because it's all life. It's all us. It's all the human experience. And so, yeah, thank you so much for sharing with us today and for all of your beautiful work. It was really fascinating. And yes, everyone should go and read your book. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Three things I'm taking away from this conversation with Osprey. Firstly, we are all relatives, the mountain, the rivers, the earth, and us, and we need to protect and fight for our family. Secondly, we need a legal system that recognizes that nature is alive, and when we support nature, nature regenerates herself way faster than we might think. And thirdly, we need to see indigenous people as scientists and uplift their knowledge and ensure they have decision-making power. I'm curious, what did you think about the episode, and what were your main takeaways? Is there a topic you want me to dive deeper into? I'd love to hear from you. You can find me at Steph L. Dixon or at Live Wide Awake. If you got something out of the podcast and you want to continue this journey with us, consider subscribing and supporting. I hope that today's conversation stirred something deep within you ready to awaken. And until next time, live wide awake.